outline a little bit just so we don't get bogged down and I, I cut this down quite a bit so uh, three pages was the best I could do but it's it's 14 point type so uh, it's uh, uh, not as much as you would think but it notice in verses one and two uh, it's regarding what is the this this uh, intermarriage between it says the sons of God and the daughters of men now this is one of those areas that there has uh, been some uh, differences in understanding who are those sons of God. I remember uh, in a church when I was in South Carolina on staff, and I remember it was kind of a, uh, this uh, older gentleman who's with the Lord now, now named Carol Mosley, and he used to kind of always tease the pastor. He said, Pastor, who are those sons of God? You know, because there's really three options in uh, biblical scholarship and trying to understand them. One of the ways they've understood this, and again, I have this a little bit in your outline there, is that the sons of God, who are these sons of God? Well, one option is that they are uh, the line of Seth. Remember, there's two lines that are in operation, okay? You have the lineage or line of Cain, and the line of Seth. Remember, Seth was the third child born to Adam and Eve after the murder of Cain, or yeah, Cain murdered Abel. And so uh, they say, look, this is a reference between you have the godly line, if you will, of Seth, and they're intermarrying with this ungodly line. So it's really just a reference to a intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly, okay? So that's one option. And again, that's, that's a very uh, popular understanding. The, uh, I'm kind of persuaded differently as a lot of other people are. And again, there's, there's differences of opinion. But I've kind of taken that the sons of God, as I'll show in just a minute, is a reference to either some type of demons or angels, fallen angels, who've rebelled against God, or are references to actual men that are demon-possessed men who have commingled, intermarrying the daughters of men. I mean, normal, natural women, but in some way these individual men are either uh, some type of hybrid angelic demons, fallen angels, or demonized men. Because if you follow along here in a little bit, uh, the phrase, and again, I'm just following your outline there, the phrase sons of God, really it's interesting because sons of God is a reference to angelic creatures. I have one of a few uh, scriptures from Job I just have one in your outline for space. But that same Hebrew term that is translated sons of God in the English is referencing angels. And in Job 1.6, and there's three other references there, two other references. But Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was among them. And if you read on, it's clearly referencing angelic beings of some type. Now, what's interesting is, is the translators of the Old Testament into Greek, which is called what? Anybody know what? The, well, you got it in your outline there, so everybody should know it. It's called the Septuagint, 
the Septuagint was translated maybe, uh, oh, let's just say within 20 years, I might be wrong on that, before the birth of Christ. It was during the time when the Greek language was really the dominant language on the face of the earth during what is the Greek period. Uh, you know, in Jesus' day, the uh, trade language really as English in many ways is kind of the international language of the, of the world really still. Uh, the Greek language was kind of the, uh, the dominant uh, language of the arts, of literature, of trade, and that was the influence of Greek culture. And so as part of the advancement of Greek culture, there was a, uh, a, a growth in literature and books being translated from different cultures into the Greek language. Uh, Alexandria in Egypt was one of the world's, at the time, largest libraries that housed uh, a lot of uh, books and literature during this time. And one of the things that was translated from the Hebrew, because only... Uh, Orthodox rabbis could read Hebrew. Hebrew really was, a, was essentially a dead language, but they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek language, and that certainly advanced Old Testament study to people that were not Greek in that time. So that's why you have in the New Testament, when the advancement of the gospel is going into Greek regions, you find a lot of what is, you know, they'll refer to as God-fearing Gentiles, or you'll find Gentiles that are converts to Judaism, and certainly the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Jewish Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, was certainly a major instrument in the uh, propagation of Judaism into non-Jewish culture, Right? So it's kind of in a different way. It's kind of like, if you remember, back in the late 60s uh, in when the Living Bible was published, all of a sudden it opened up reading the Bible to people that would never touch it because you only had... And so people that came in the Revised Standard Version, you only had two alternatives. And so people that found the King James difficult... A paraphrase is different than a translation. A translation is concern about a word-for-word -word equivalent as its you know, accuracy. A paraphrase is, is still okay, but it's trying to convey the broader meaning. So it's a little looser in its word-for-word -word, uh, you know, equivalency, if that makes sense. So just why the Living Bible opened up a whole new audience of reading the Bible, that was what the Septuagint was. Now, I said all that to say that when the Septuagint when it references, if you were to look up in the Greek uh, Old Testament, if you were to look up this passage in Genesis 6-2, they do not translate it sons of God. They translate it angels or angelic uh, beings. So their understanding, as they were looking to translate the Hebrew into Greek and give some understanding, they understood that term sons of God to be referencing angels or angelic beings, okay? So that's, that's another reason why I think that we're talking about the sons of God. Who are they? They're uh, referencing to some type of angels and not people descended from Seth, okay? Or the godly, or, uh, the godly line. Also, the letter of Jude, that's in the New Testament, only one chapter in verse 6 and 7, and I have that there on your outline for you to just uh, look at. 
uh, Jude affirms in reference to this passage, he affirms that they are speaking about angels, not natural, normal people from a genealogical line of set, that these individuals referencing as the sons of God are referring to angels. Look at Jude verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, uh, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then it goes on to say in verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah, as an example, and the cities around them, in a similar way to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, flesh, strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Do you remember those who came and visited Lot were angels? And do you remember when they were in the house of Lot that the ungodly people on the outside wanted to get in and have sexual relations with them, okay? So I'm just saying that in reference, who are these sons of God? It seems as the normal reading that it's referencing some type of either demonic uh, fallen angels or individuals who are demonized men. Now, now that may sound a little weird, but it's just trying to understand the passage, okay? Let me also say that those that tend to take it more in a naturalistic sense, they're just saying, oh, that's just, that's just referencing the ungodly line intermarried with the godly line. The problem with that is that when you read it, when you read this passage, that it, you know, it does, if just intermarriage outside of the tribe was the sin, it seems like a pretty big judgment for something that went on certainly after the flood, right? Something so cataclysmic happened to the human race that God's judgment to essentially wipe it out and start over was such a big issue, something happened. Something happened quite unusual there in Genesis 6, rather than just intermarriage, okay? Um, could be, but I'm just trying to, uh, trying to understand from the reading here. Um, and so Jude affirms that they were angels. Now, one objection um, some would make to the idea that they were angels is something Jesus said in Matthew 22:30. That's on the next page there in the box, Matthew 22:30. You remember when Jesus is talking about the resurrection, he says, makes this reference in Matthew 22:30, for in the resurrection they, talking about glorified believers, they're the ones being resurrected, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So some would point to that and say, no, these couldn't be either fallen angels or some type of supernatural beings or some type of demonized individuals the, uh, because of what Jesus said, that, that the implication is they're not given into marriage, even though it doesn't say this, but people take the implication that there is no sexuality or sexual activity uh, in regards to uh, after or in the resurrection. The point that I would make is, is that 
uh, limit yourself to only what is said there. And again, I, I, listen, I'm not making a case. I'm just saying I'm kind of persuaded this way, and I'll give some more reasons here in a minute. Jesus never said angels were necessary sexless, okay? He just says, and again, he's not talking about fallen angels. He's saying angels of God, talking about Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30. He's talking about the angels of God in heaven, okay? Um, and he's speaking about faithful angels, angels of God in heaven, not necessarily rebellious, demonized ones. So all my point is, is that when we say, who are these sons of God? I think there's, to me, ample evidence that they're not just speaking about a normal human line of people, that there's something different about this term, sons of God, if you connect, again, the same Hebrew words that's referring to, referring to them as angels or angelic beings. There's something different about them. There's some type of commingling between these fallen type beings Again, whether they are purely fallen angels or they are angels or fallen angels or demons that have demonized, possessed, we might say possessed human beings, something goes on between that inner marriage between these quote-unquote sons of God and the daughters of men that is so bad that it leads God to advance His wrath and judgment to wipe out the face of the earth. You with me? Even though I'm not sure and you're not sure exactly what that is, it has to be more than just intermarrying outside of a, of a tribe. That's, that's kind of where I'm at with that, all right? The other thing is, um, keep reading in verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 2, verse 3, And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet all, and yet his days, yet his days shall be 100, whoops, looks like I didn't, ah, I hate this, this really makes me mad, That's, all right, you know what, we're going to, Jeanette, just turn that off up there, I'm not going to use that, get your Bibles out, that's why, just start bringing your Bibles, makes life a lot easier that way, all right, all right. If you don't bring your Bibles, you just have to take my word for it. Make sure I'm not reading out of the Book of Mormon, all right? <laughs> but look at verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and yet his days shall be 120 years. And then it says in verse 4, notice God's response. Then in verse 4, and this again is why I, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn that, sorry, if you want to go ahead and turn that off. Uh, notice verse 4, that it seems the natural reading that the offspring between this, this, this intermarriage between the sons of God and the daughters of men, verse 4, it says that in this same reading context that there were giants on the earth in those days. This is pre, pre-flood, pre, or before Noah. And also afterward, and we know later with David, there was uh, Goliath, but there seems to be in the reading some type of offspring that is some type of, as odd as it sounds, some type of hybrid that is produced by these fallen beings of whatever they are and the daughters of men. There's some type of 
commingling, if you will, okay? Verse 4, they were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God, making reference that these type of uh, freaks, if you will, these giants, um, that they are the product of when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now again, notice the word flow into verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wicked, wickedness of man was great on the earth. So again, as you read it, the natural reading is that something really, 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 really awful happened that resulted in God's wrath when he saw what was happening here in this wickedness and calls whatever this commingling is between these demonized beings and human women. You with me? Now, I know that's weird. And you can take an unsupernatural view by just saying, oh, no, 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 it's not referring to that. It's just referring to intermingling of, of, a, of an ungodly tribe. Okay, that's fine. But I go back to my point is saying there was a lot of intermarriage, and God didn't wipe out the face of the earth. There was something so uh, in the human DNA that was so affected that God's wrath was to essentially start over. Okay? Heavy. Well, and that's who they're referred to as the Nephilim. And there's a lot of, by the way, there's a lot of good stuff and there's a lot of crazy stuff on YouTube in studying these Nephilims, all right? So there's a lot of speculation. Um, what reference is that? Is that in Second Peter? Uh, yeah. Okay, I don't know off the top of my head. So, yeah. I, I know there, but uh, let, me, let me keep going. Maybe you can look it up and I'll, uh, I'll look at it. So in verse, uh, let's look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And look at this. Boy, this again is descriptive of the human race up to this point. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So something really really bad has come over the earth and is affecting the earth, affecting the earth. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that term sorry, you might, uh, might have the old King James, I don't know if it says, and the Lord repented, that he had made them. I'm not sure if that's uh, uh, the, that the King James used the word repented, but essentially, I think what, that's one. That, remember when I told you that that big, big word called anthropomorphism? Remember that big word, anthro? 
anthropology, you know, uh, anthro means what? Man. So when something is called an anthropomorphism, it's just this. It's trying to put human descriptions on God. Talking about the hand of God. Does that mean there's a giant hand? The eyes of the Lord. Are they just huge eyes going throughout? In other words, it's trying to give, because think about it, our ability to describe any aspect of God is limited. We're talking about God. I liken it to, again, a, a pile of ants trying to reason to human beings. I mean, that the, you know, the separation is, is great, all right? So when it speaks about the Lord is sorry, he was sorry that he made man, you know, there's nothing in the understanding of God that God ever said, oops, Boy, I wish I had known before I did that. That's not happening with God. It's human language to, I think, describe or, or intimate uh, some aspect of God's effect that he has towards sin. Because, again, some people have this mindset of, a, of just this cold deity that has no a sense of, of uh, you know, I don't want to say feelings, but that's the only word I can think of. Feelings uh, concerning the sinfulness or rebellion of humankind. So, understanding when it says the Lord was sorry that he made man is trying to give in a, in a language, trying to emit a, a, um, a feeling of God's regret in the sense that it brought him sorrow at the rejection and rebelliousness of his creation. It was not what he had originally purpose and design when he created humanity. Okay? It's not, again, that God missed something. It isn't that, oh, if God had only known. Well, that seems to be contrary to the picture of God in Scripture. But in here, you need to say, is this using, again, is this attaching human language to describe something of God that is really for us to relate to. It's not for God to relate to it, but for us to relate and see a side of God that he was affected because of what was taking place. You with me? Okay. Notice how the Bible also says, right in the middle of this, it says, verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he made man, said he will destroy man on the, from the face of the earth. But look at verse 8. But. Now, good, lang, good English, you never start a sentence with but. I forget what they, some kind of conjunctive. Some of you English scholars will know, but you're not supposed to. But here it's a good, it's a good place. Because God, that word but, is providing contrast between the great wickedness and evil that is pervasive over the face of the earth and giving contrast that as great and as wicked and as evil as humanity has fallen into to the point that God is going to judge the entire earth. But as bad as that is, what does it say? Verse 8, 
it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Galatians, if you remember in Galatians, Paul is talking about uh, his testimony. And he says, and I tried to destroy the church, but when God in his grace called me when I was yet in my mother's womb. In other words, I was going down one road, but thank goodness for the but. As bad as that was, but God who called me before, when I was yet in my mother's womb, before I had any choice, God had a purpose and a plan. So even here, God is in essence starting over, but not really because he's not going to recreate hum- humankind ex nihilo. You know, that's Latin from creating something from nothing. He's not doing that exactly, but in spite of the wickedness, verse 8, Noah found grace. He didn't earn grace. But he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So I'm just going to stop at verse 8. But look at one last reference here concerning these days of Noah. It's something that we see from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. You know, Matthew 24 is that great chapter that speaks about the, uh, where Jesus addresses his second coming, the second coming of Christ. And verse 1 of Matthew 24, it says, Now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, because right above that he talked about the destruction of the temple. And so as they got him alone privately, they said, Tell us, when will these things be? Boy, that was a burning question. Because even after Jesus was resurrected in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended, What was the burning question they wanted to know? Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, that was a big deal. They were under oppression. The Messiah, that was, remember, they had a false concept of Messiah, but they certainly, he aroused their attention. Tell us, when will these things be? And notice they said, what will be the sign of, of your coming and of the end of the age. And I just skipped down to verse 37 there in chapter 24. And Jesus says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, Well, you remember what it was, remember what we read about the days of Noah? What how, what the earth and what life was like in the days of Noah, referencing pre-flood, it's going to be kind of like that. Now, help me a little bit. What were the days of Noah? What were some things that we've even just talked about, but what, what are some things of the days of Noah that are really we even see in our day? Well, do what? Yeah. An exponential evil. Think about how, well, we'll get into that. Somebody else. What else? Evil continually. What else? Huh? Idol worship. I would even say, ultimately, because the heart behind idol worship is the increase of the demonic. 
Because, I mean, that's the root. Anything that's rebellious against God is demonic. And there is, in fact, I just, in one of the, the feeds that you, you know, read or whatever, there was an article about the, uh, the growth of paganism that is going on uh, in America. Uh, and the growth of demonization. If you ever go into Books a Million, just look over in the sections of the, of the occult, you know, and all that. I mean, again, there's a fascination. Look at some of the, on some of the, the cable channels that almost have, a, you know, uh, some of the discovery channels or whatever, and they're just filled with, you know, uh, as far as the delving into the, the demonic and the, you know, the afterlife and ghosts. It's always interesting how an atheistic worldview that sees nothing beyond the material, natural world, yet loves to reach out and borrow from the other world and supernatural and believe there's got to be something more out there. And again, some of this is demonized, even this obsession with UFOs and beings coming and inhabiting. Uh, I mean, you listen, to, you're like, oh, I listen to those stories. You're like, either, either these people are absolutely crazy or some of them actually had some real experiences of some of these demonized UFO alien beings coming and whether they're kidnapping them back to the mothership, to the Enterprise, or, or uh, whether they're inhabiting their body. And we can just kind of laugh and scoff at that. But I think if you, if you just read chapter 6 and those first eight verses at face value... There's something really bizarre and supernatural that was going on on the face of the earth. Are y'all tired? You just—I mean, I mean this. I know it's—I know it's odd. It's odd. Go back. What's 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 the hinge in Genesis three? Genesis three fifteen. Remember what it says. God says uh, there's going to be the seed that I'm going to reproduce through the woman. There's going to be hostility. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Satan. There's a curse between your seed and the woman's seed. Now we know that that is speaking futuristically, prophetically of that seed of the woman is speaking ultimately of the fulfillment of Christ, the Messiah. You will bruise his heel. You will, do temp- you will make an attempt to strike him, but he will crush your head. That's, that's, that's key. And I think that's what's going on right here, to your point, because, and I'm going to read you something somebody wrote here I thought was good. I wasn't going to use it. When it says they took wives for themselves, 
this writer says, we can deduce why Satan sent his angels to intermarry either directly or indirectly, meaning either directly as some type of demonic beings or demonized through demonized men, why he chose to uh, send his angels, fallen angels, to intermarry with human women. Satan tried to pollute the genetic pool of mankind with a satanic corruption to put a genetic virus to make the human race unfit for bringing forth the seed, capital S, seed of the woman, the Messiah, as promised in Genesis 3.15. The Savior, uh, one Reformed scholar, so these aren't just, you know, these aren't just nuts saying this. Uh, one uh, James Montgomery Boyce, a Reformed uh, theologian who's in heaven, says the Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother, so as Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the Deliverer could not come. And then this writer says, Satan almost succeeded. The race was so polluted that God found it necessary to start again with Noah and his sons and spare them in the flood. Again, Noah and his sons weren't, they weren't sinless, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't like doing away with sin. That could only come about through the necessity of the Messiah that would be the atoning Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, right? So it wasn't God was, was creating or recreating a non-sinful race. He was still, sin still had to be dealt with. But something, and I think they're on to something in what they were saying, is that Satan's attempt to pollute the genetic lineage by whatever is going on in those first eight verses of Genesis 6. As again, my argument is something really, really bad must have happened if the consequence was an absolute total destruction of the earth and to save a few in the ark, knowing his family. Who else? Somebody else had a hand. Arnie? Yeah. 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 And again, that does seem, I mean, that does seem, that's the pattern in, when you read the New Testament, in the age prior, read, you know, First or Second Timothy, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, and that the wickedness and the evil becomes more pervasive on the face of the earth. And people will no longer tolerate things like sound doctrine or the Word of God or Ed. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the you know, again, you don't want to read too much in there, but it's interesting that again, you you go back and look at Genesis 3:15 and again you look at what Genesis 3:15 is looking ahead in the future and that it, again, the way that Satan wants to pervert 
marriage, reproduction. Now, I'll just say this and you can think about it. In Romans chapter 1, it's interesting, I always find it interesting that in Romans chapter 1, that when the Apostle Paul wanted to illustrate the wickedness and the sinfulness and depravity of humanity, what was the one sin that he pulled out to illustrate? Yeah. Because homosexuality, that he said that Romans 1 speaks about unnatural affections. Remember the passage we read in Jude? That the reference between the demonized activity he connected with Sodom and Gomorrah. That if Satan's attempt has always been to pollute and ruin the genetic godly line. And you can even expand that in the sense of the family unit. What did God? Jesus even affirmed he created male and female. That what God has put together let no man separate. So the very, the very essence of God's purpose and design of a woman and of a man under God being joined together, created by God, unique but yet unified to follow the commands of God, to take dominion and to replenish the earth, to have children, to populate the earth, homosexuality completely turns that on its heads, doesn't it? Again, it makes a very mockery of the very fabric of what God's original purpose and design of the human race was intended to do under the glory and purposes of God. So in Romans chapter 1, people say, well, all sin is sin. Yeah, but stealing a paperclip and stabbing somebody is different. Right? I hope it is. That Paul used, when he wanted to, remember what the, what the language is? Even though God has made himself known in the creation, the picture of humanity is even though they knew God, meaning they knew in the sense of a creator, they chose to worship the creation or the creature instead of the creator. That they suppressed the truth. That means they intentionally and deliberately held it down to refuse and rebel. And as this was a continuation, what does the Bible say that God did? Much like what happens here in Genesis 6. And God did what? Gave them up. God didn't make them do something they weren't inclined to do. They were demonstrating their resistance and rebellion against the Creator. So when it says, and God gave them up or God gave them over, God took his restraining, ver- uh, uh, what do I want to say, uh, calls of grace and mercy and allowed hu- human humanity to do what it was intending to do and wanted to do. The worst thing is for God to give you what you want. The worst thing is for God to give you over to the, what your heart is settled to do. And then when it says, and God gave them over, he didn't create fresh evil to make them do something that they were robotic in doing. He just simply removed his hands of restraint and grace 
And really, like we see here in Genesis 6, when it says, and I think I may have, uh, when it says and uses the phrase that in verse was it verse four? Where uh, verse five, the law, the uh, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. That means that there was a point of no return, like in Romans one, there was a point of no return, and God gave them over. So don't miss the connections between God creating male female reproduction. Glorifying God as our first parents, corruption and evil, and the Genesis 3.15, the, the godly line, ungodly line, and Satan's attempt to pollute the godly human line that what he could not do, because he wasn't God, to thwart or keep Messiah to come, whether he even understood that or not, which I'm not even sure he did, but he knew something was going to be reproduced. Just like he demonized Pharaoh to destroy those male babies. Why? Genesis 3.15. He's always about destroying or polluting or corrupting. Because God, God was going to bring forth Messiah through what? Not through outer space, but through the, a human vehicle, a human line. Born of the woman, not arriving in a spaceship. Born through the woman, a real woman, a real earthly sinful woman that God was going to use to bring forth a child, the incarnation. And why was, why was it of necessity for Jesus to be born as a human being, image bearer man? Not just come down as a as an angel or whatever. Yeah, look on your uh, third sheet. Let me make some quick, broad principles here from Genesis six one through eight. Here, sin is always progressive in its growth and destructive in its nature. Some things that we pick here. Remember what James said, and I do have this on the screen. I'm gonna try it again. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. All right, step one. Then, when desire has conceived, it does what? It gives birth to sin. Sin is never content to just lay dormant. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? Death. For all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So sin, as we see here in Genesis 6, is always progressive in its growth and destructive nature. Secondly, regardless of the pervasiveness of sin, God always has a remnant of obedient followers. I mean, that was the but in, what was it, verse 8? But Noah, as wicked and as horrible as it was, God had a Noah. And God still has a remnant, hopefully more than just one man. And the Bible says, in verses 9 through 10, it says that Noah walked with God. Chapter before, over in Genesis 5, it talked about Enoch walked with God and he was no more. God, he was raptured. He was taken out. He was transferred. Um, walk with God implies there's knowledge of God, that you know God. 
can't walk and be in alignment with somebody you don't have any knowledge of. It implies intimacy with God. To walk with God implies intimacy and obedience to God. Noah walked with God, and Noah found the grace of God. God always has a remnant of obedient followers, no matter how wicked it is. Thirdly, that God initiates His grace to rescue His people. God is always the initiator. Um, what did he say in verse, verse uh, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, says that uh, verse 9, Noah walked with God. Noah begat three sons. Let me find the verse I want to find. It says the earth was corrupt, verse 11. Um, so God looked upon the earth and indeed was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way. And then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come to me, the end of all flesh, the end of humanity has come to me, for the earth is filled with violence, and I will destroy them with the earth, from the earth. But what does he say in verse 14? God initiates his grace to Noah, and he says, make yourself an ark. God's initiating. It's going to be destruction. It's going to be wrath. I'm going to judge sin, but make yourself an ark. There's, there's God's initiative of grace. God could have just God could have just lumped, you know, no end with the whole bunch. But God initiates his grace. I like uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. But look at Hebrews eleven seven. It's on the screen. By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen. That's God's mercy and grace. And guess what? We have, we have the divine warning by God of what's ahead right now. We have the divine warning. It says that Noah moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Number four, because God is holy, he must judge sin. Deuteronomy 31, 29. For I know that after my death you will be... This is Moses saying this to the children of Israel. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will, be, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of of your hands. God judges and must judge sin. Number five, God's mercy provides opportunity for people to repent. Um, that we know from the verse back in uh, Genesis, I thought it was 11.7, but that from the time that Moses received the command to build the ark, and from the time of the flood was 120 years. God always provides time in His grace and His mercy to repent and to change. Right? Remember what Paul said about when he was speaking to those Athenian pagans? He said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, see it capitalized, I'm about Christ, 
whom he has ordained. And the last is that regardless of the condition of the world, faithfulness to God is always possible. Noah, here he was, verse 9, in the midst of, I mean, not just bad, but I mean, demonically polluted bad. And what does it say? That Noah was a righteous man, a blameless person, living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. That's from the New Living Translation. You say, well, you don't know how terrible it is at the office. You know how wicked those people are. Noah, in the midst of an unrighteous, wicked, evil generation, walked with God. No matter how bad it gets, it is possible to walk in close fellowship with God. Any last thoughts, questions? If you get on and start delving into the Nephilim and all, let me just warn you ahead of time, there's a lot, a lot of goofy stuff. There's a lot of interesting stuff, stuff I, no way I could even get into. And part of it is because I'm not even sure how much of it, again, it's always dangerous to go beyond, you know, when you start speculating, start reading between the white spaces and say, well, Again, that's why I just said, I don't know exactly what that was, but it was something between reading Jude and reading what the consequence was, something so evil infected the human race that the consequence and judgment required God to start over. I don't know what it all was, but it must have been something that that was the only... Yeah.